HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant located in Williamsburg. We're kicking off 2017 with a whole bunch of fresh episodes here on Heritage Radio. If this is your first time tuning in, each week I sit down with a chef, a butcher, a baker, a restaurateur for a one-on-one discussion about their life as we trace the line of their career through uh, childhood, first jobs in food, and the path they chose that led them to become who they are today. From how it all began to where they are now and everything in between, this is the line. Today, my guest is Tracy Young. She's the co-owner of Kings County Imperial, located in Williamsburg. We're going to discuss a lot of things, cooking in New Zealand, cooking on yachts, and bees. Yes, we're going to talk about bees today. Tracy, welcome to the line. Thanks for having me, Eli. I actually want to start off talking about bees. Uh, You are an avid beekeeper. It's something that you've done uh, for a while, you keep bees here in Brooklyn, correct? <clears throat> Actually, the bees are down outside of Philadelphia. I grew okay. up um, out in a suburb about 10 minutes outside of Philly. Um, my family still has a little piece of land down there, so I keep the bees down there. So this is something that most people spend their lives in terror, fleeing from <laughs> bees. You know, it's uh, snakes and bees go the other direction as, as fast as possible. Absolutely. Get away from them. You like to suit up and get in uh, in the mix with the bees. I've only seen a little bit, obviously, on TV and movies. What does that really consist of, keeping bees? Well, <clears throat> it's partly a leap of faith. Um, I took a course from the New York City Beekeepers Association uh, a bunch of years ago. Um, which was incredibly informative, but it was all classroom-related. So the foray from that into the real thing was uh, a bit of an eye-opener. It's, uh, I have two hives, so it's not a, a big operation. Uh, each hive, depending on the season, can contain anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000 uh, Italian honeybees. And uh, at their peak performance, I, I get, 
gather about 60 pounds of honey per season. So it's um, the bees do a lot of work. I do a little work. Um, mostly I just <clears throat> make sure their hives are healthy and help manipulate a little bit just their um, living situation, I guess it is. So why bees? How did that become a hobby of yours? I was absolutely fascinated by these little insects that produce um, really gold. It's the only food um, that I know of in the world that, that can maintain its character and its edibility over thousands and thousands of years. They still find honey in the ancient tombs of Egypt, and I was absolutely just fascinated by um, the whole process. So I I started just uh, trying to learn a little more, and then I just fell in love with these little insects that are incredibly industrious and uh, very resilient. It's it's a fascinating product. It's delicious, but it can also be used as as an antiseptic, right? That's right. It has so many different properties, um, both, you know, in the culinary world and medicinally. I um, actually have a mentor, a beekeeping mentor, and he's been doing it for about 40 years, but he shows up with shorts and a T-shirt on. And in the beginning, I thought, okay, well, I can do that. And no, I can't do that. I, I, I don't suit up fully, but I wear gloves and I wear a veil. And he's it's, a bee whisperer. <laughs> he is. And, I like that. Mm, you have a bee mentor. I have a beekeeping mentor, That is yes. something that we can all aspire to, a <laughs> beekeeping mentor. So I've been reading... Um, that bees are potentially going extinct, that there is a shortage of bees in the United States, or is it worldwide? Have you been, as a beekeeper, has this been something that you can shed a little light on? Do you have any um, inside info for the listeners on what's going on with the bee population? Sure. I think in general, the bee population, particularly in the United States, has suffered a decline due to many different reasons. I think partly pesticides and the use of Um, systematic pesticides in the country has definitely uh, had a dent on the population. Monocropping, which is uh, the practice of just planting one crop, particularly out in the Midwest, um, has affected the bees' ability to gather the nutrients and the nectar that they need. And then there's disease, which, um, you know, as the world, I guess, becomes... Uh, a little bit smaller. There's been disease spread uh, from other countries, and that has, you know, had an effect on the bee population as well. Luckily, um, with the rise of beekeeping, there are a lot of people out there, um, huge advocates for the bee population, that I think are are trying to do their best to to make sure that things stay stay on track. I want to uh, talk a little bit about your childhood and also stay focused on the outdoors. I know that you have been uh, someone who's spent a huge amount of time outdoors. You've also also done quite a bit of teaching outdoors through the, uh, correct me, is it the National Outdoor Leadership Organization? That's exactly right, National Outdoor Leadership School. And... Did you grow up someone who mom and dad kicked you out of the house and you had to spend all day outside? What is a childhood like of someone who grows up to be a chef and a restaurant owner and a beekeeper, but also someone who still to this day is spending time teaching about the outdoors? And also talk a little bit about the organization and what it does. You bet. So I grew up in a family in suburbia, suburbia Philadelphia, that, um, you know, we were pretty run-of-the-mill in, in, from the surface, I guess. But underneath it all, um, my parents really endeavored to expose us to uh, the outdoors and to the natural world. So, for instance, you know, they would take us on canoeing trips on the weekends, and we would go camping, and my dad had a 
huge garden uh, on a piece of property behind our home where he spent weekends. Uh, and, well, he spent a lot of time up there. My sister and I were definitely disgruntled young laborers up there on the <laughs> in the family, you know, quote-unquote uh, garden for, for many, many years. But um, so I spent a lot of time with my parents and then on, on my own, um, you know, just, just in the natural world. My parents raised quail and we had, you know, endless... Uh, animals around. We had fruit trees, and so we 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 had a lot of experience with that. So I, I think growing up, that that was instilled in me a, a real respect and love for the outdoor world. And then uh, I I majored in environmental science in college. I had an undergraduate degree uh, from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in environmental science, and that segued into a career for almost fifty years as fifteen years as an instructor for the National Outdoor Leadership School, a wonderful organization uh, with its base out in Lander, Wyoming, at the foothill hills of the Wind River Range, um, and they teach uh, minimum impact travel and um, environmental education uh, in, in wild places out in the world. What's minimum impact travel? Minimum impact travel is um, spending time in wild places and leaving the least trace that you can, um, whether it be, you know, Packing in, packing out, it means taking everything you need in and make sure it all comes out with you. Um, making sure that your travel techniques um, leave the least impact uh, possible on, on the natural world. So I guess I would describe myself as an indoor kid. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not a video game guy, but I definitely, um, I never, my family wasn't a big camping yeah. family. You know, we went to <laughs> national parks, but then we would get in a car and drive back to a hotel. So is this, good. <laughs> is this the type of uh, school that you would uh, – you, do you take kids out for days and weeks at a time? Is it sort of like Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts where there's skill sets that are being learned in the outdoors, how to build a fire, things of that nature? Absolutely. This is pretty extreme. Uh, it's a, typically 32 days in uh, the wilderness uh, with everything that you could possibly need for that time period, keeping in mind that you're carrying it all in a backpack. So, uh, you know, it's going to sound a little crazy, but, you know, you take a t-shirt and some shorts and and all the gear you need for, you know, to be safe and to be warm and be fed, uh, typically resupplied by either horse packer or float plane, depending on where you are, if you're up in Alaska, um, for rations. But other than that, you we, we are self-contained, self-sufficient, uh, and teaching young adults, the minimum age is typically about 16. I I'd say the average age is 22. Uh, college credits were available through the University of Utah, but definitely the focus of teaching outdoor skills, be it map reading or rock climbing or navigation uh, for, throughout the, the process of, of, you know, almost a month. Yeah. So you spent a lot of time uh, in the southwest, middle of America. It's it's not a very uh, built-up area that's, that's obviously a ton of nature, a lot of unex, unexplored and uh, underdeveloped areas. And now you live here in, in Brooklyn, one of the most densely populated areas of North America, if not the world. When you want to get away, do you go back to Wyoming? Do you go to New Mexico? Where, where do you like to go in the United States to get a little... Um, private time to clear your head now that you're back in the concrete jungle? That's a great question, Eli. I, I, you know, I do struggle with that. It, it's not easy to um, 
to get really away these days. But yes, I go. I typically go back out west. I, um, you know, last spring I did a snowshoeing trip up in the Rocky Mountains with some friends outside of, you know, outside of Denver and Colorado. I go, I was in New Mexico last last fall. Um, so yeah, I do try to get back out out west as much as possible. But there's some you know great areas around here too. The Adirondacks, the Catskills. If you really you know need to get away, there's there's places where you can tuck away and get some get some quiet time. What made you want to, and we'll talk about, you know, how you ended up back in New York, but going from that specific sort of outdoor experience, what made you transition to, uh, to cooking? That's a great question. So I worked for Knowles for quite some time. Um, it's a year round organization and I am a horrible skier. So my winter options were pretty limited. Uh, they do, you know, three week long telemark backcountry ski trips, which, um, I was, I was never really, I never really took to that. I broke my ankle actually very early on trying to learn to telemark. So I had to come up with a different plan. So I ended up uh, being the cook at their winter ski base in Victor, Idaho. So I'd spend uh, spring, summer, fall leading outdoor trips in, in the mountains and in the desert. And then in the winter, I would run uh, the kitchen at their ski base. And so that was my really first foray into, I don't know, sort of the, it, it, the industry of cooking uh, for someone other than myself or family or friends. What was that like cooking in Idaho with maybe <laughs> limited access to product? Perhaps you order something and then does it come by plane seven days later? Tell the listeners what that's like to be at a lodge sort of you know, in the middle of nowhere relative to where we are sitting right now. Absolutely. I mean, it, it wasn't quite that extreme. I mean, there was, there was a company called Cisco, and they, they deliver all over the world, you know, to oh, food, yeah. food Cis- service. Yeah. Cisco will find yeah. you wherever exactly. you are. Exactly. Yeah. So Cisco would roll up, you know, once a week, and I'd, I'd get all my supplies. And it was amazing. I loved it. You know, I'd, I'd spend uh, the day cooking for people that were really appreciative because they had just been out, uh, you know, learning the basics of telemark skiing before they went into the back country so they'd come back cold and hungry and tired and you know they they were happy to eat anything i could i could put on the plate the best audience possible (laughs) whatever you gave them was the most delicious thing they had ever had whether it was or wasn't (laughs) which i'm sure a lot of the time it wasn't always that uh that amazing but it was a great experience and it was um it inspired me to take that further i went to culinary school um a bunch of years later where'd you go to culinary school i went to culinary school at the new england culinary institute that's in montpelier vermont fabulous two-year education that really, really um, accelerated my abilities, you know, and set me up well for the industry. So you studied sustainability at at Amherst, you cook, you went to culinary school, uh, you're gardening as a young child. I see a trend that all things are kind of (laughs) funneling upwards toward a career uh, appreciating produce and food. Uh, after culinary school, what? Where did you go? After culinary school, um, I went out into the industry for a while. I I cooked in Philadelphia, where I grew up. Um, I went to New Zealand, where a, a chef that had actually gone to New England Culinary, um, a Kiwi, had opened up a, a reputable restaurant. I went and fell in love with New Zealand. I spent a lot of time over the years over there. But um, and I, you know, I. I I spent time learning and and garnering skills and the education I needed, you know, hands-on education to to move forward. So I 
I spent a bunch of time, yeah, let's, working in kitchens. Let's give New Zealand more than one second uh, of, of sentence. I want to know, what was that transition like, moving from the United States to New Zealand? What type of restaurant was it? And uh, I, I've never been to New Zealand, so if you can describe what it's like to, to live in New Zealand and be cooking there as a, as a young adult right out of college... Was it exciting? Were you scared? How did oh, make- I was scared to death. My, I, I showed up, you know, I went, my first time I went, I went for a year, and I packed so much stuff, and I remember his name's Al Brown. He's amazing. He, to this day, is uh, one of my inspirations, and, and Al picked me up at the airport, and then I'll screw up the accent. He said, oh, see so you travel, travel light, mate. And he, as we were hauling off, you know, just about everything you could think of that I brought along with me. But um, it, was a, it was a very steep learning curve. Logan Brown was a... Uh, upscale, fine dining restaurant. You, but but New Zealand is absolutely one of the most pristine, beautiful places I've ever been. Um, they take a lot of care in their uh, agricultural systems. There's a lot of wild fisheries and and uh, beautiful local produce that they use. And so, uh, my experience at Logan Brown really was an eye opener into to that area of you know farm to table. And uh, before it was probably even had you know the term farm to table. So um, I spent a year. I, I screwed up a lot when I first arrived. I, oh God, I remember the first. I arrived over Christmas. And um, I couldn't understand the accent really well at all. I was just, and the kitchen was loud and it was busy and, and I would get yelled at. And, and I would just remember Al saying, go get the fish spot, mate. And I was like, oh my God, I would run into the basement and I'd look around. And I was like, I don't even know what he said. And I'd go back up and I'd say, what? He said, the fish spot. And I was like, the fish spot? What? Oh, what? Some kind of fish? Anyway, finally I asked the dishwasher. He's like, I think you call it the spatula. I'm like, oh, he needs a spatula. And it was just, it was pretty touch and go for a while there. But I fell in love with the restaurant. I fell in love with the country. Um, yeah, I've been back probably 10 or 15 times uh, over the course of my, my life, and I hope to keep keep going back. Great fly fishing territory. If you're into fly fishing, which I am, it's uh, absolutely beautiful, pristine uh, mountain waters. And, and What is the general cuisine like of New Zealand? Is there a national style of cuisine to any extent, or is it a, a blend of a lot of different cultures? I'd say it's it's... It's. They're probably, in modern times, still developing what New Zealand cuisine is. You know, it's probably a lot like the English, um, where you know, for many years, it didn't really have a great reputation of being innovative or fresh. Um, but I would say a lot of seafood because you know the coastal waters are absolutely beautiful and clean, and you know a lot of um, the the Maori is the the native culture, uh, the native population, and there's there's some Maori influence. There's, you know, a, something called a hangi, which is a big hole you dig in the ground, and you fill it with coals, and you put a whole bunch of food in there, and you bake it over time. And, that um, sounds awesome. It's really cool. There's a lot of cool stuff. Um, the wine country is was amazing, so there's a lot of wonderful wines, and um, I, I'd say probably New Zealand cuisine is still developing, but not, not unlike, you know, American sort of farm-to-table. A lot of fresh um, local ingredients with clean, simple preparation. I'm here with Tracy Young. She's the uh, co-owner of Kings County Imperial. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about cooking on yachts. Let's do it.
New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State, certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant. Today I'm joined by Tracy Young. She is the co-owner of Kings County Imperial, located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Tracy, you cooked on yachts for a long time. I did. I, I did. am <laughs> so fascinated. I, I think the listeners out there probably have an idea of what it might be like of the glamour and the glitz of being on a yacht. I'm yeah. wondering if cooking on a yacht is as glamorous as being on the back deck sunning or yeah. if it's uh, <laughs> if you're if you're down in a room that's three by three feet and you're tell us about it. You got it. <laughs> you got it. Co- cooking on a yacht is nowhere near as glamorous as sitting on the hot tub on the top deck drinking champagne. Um, it, it was an amazing time period of my life. I mean, I literally got to ply the waters of the world and and visit far-flung places, you know, that were that I never would have gotten to otherwise. But it's a lot of work. Uh, you're often cooking for very demanding uh, clientele that, that really have access to uh, a- a- anything and everything that they want in life. And so it was... Um, it was it was an experience for sure. I, I, I cooked on boats for almost eight years, um, and I started off on small, you know, both sailing and motor boats, but worked my way up to uh, what's called the super yachts, and those are really the the you know the yachts owned by the rich and famous, and um, crews up to twenty five to thirty on a boat, maybe three hundred feet. And you might only have two guests, and and you know they might be on for two weeks, and literally it's our job twenty four seven to to cater to their every whim. So it was it was an experience. I want to know how you st- uh, let's uh, focus on a super yacht because sure. that sounds fun. Let's talk about <laughs> super yachts. Uh, so you've got w- whatever it might be two twenty people on their guests on board. They're extremely wealthy. They're used to picking up the phone, ringing a bell and saying, today I want waffles and strawberries. And, you know, for lunch, I want lobster and my kid wants a grilled cheese. How do you do you just literally stock every single thing imaginable so that whatever they may ask for, you're capable of providing it? Or do you build menus? I just I don't understand how you source if you're out at sea. How does that work? Absolutely. That's a great question. It's a little of both. So uh, typically before a trip, you you end up in a port somewhere. Let's say we're in Italy and you're in Naples. Um, There definitely would have been some legwork done beforehand with the guests or the the PA of the guests um, with general parameters of a menu. Uh, Because typically after you leave port, you go to, you know, places where, yeah, that you might be able to get the basics, but you certainly can't... um, 
get some of the uh, hard to find ingredients and 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 then with experience also you can a little bit anticipate what some needs might be that you couldn't get elsewhere so I yes I would do menu planning we'd come up with general parameters you'd stock the entire boat I mean there's walk-in freezers and and walk-in refrigerators and and dry storage and so you do your best to stock up as best you as best to your ability and then um, a little bit of extra here and there and then after that you just you know you might be on the island of Stromboli and and they might want uh, foie gras and at that point you just have to say I'm so sorry that's it's not available so I'm curious what's the most uh, interesting place that you visited while you were cooking and also I want to know what is the most elaborate thing that you had to prepare on the boat like did you ever have to cook a huge multi-course dinner for lots and lots of people was there ever a time when uh things really went off the rails on the boat oh my gosh there's many times when things went off the rails literally you can imagine you're out at sea and you know might you know might be crossing from island to island which could be a passage of anywhere from you know a few days to a few hours and oh gosh let me think um most interesting place uh, that's a tough one there's just so many amazing places out there in the world i mean i love the Balearic islands off off the coast of spain um you know the croatian coast is stunning um pristine just a wonderful culture um but yes you'd be out in the middle of these places and you know your guests might decide to fly in their closest 14 friends and suddenly they want you know a a, a 20 course dinner prepared and we'd all scramble and you know i had to sous chefs and on the big boats you you have a crew chef and a sous chef so you have a team and you know you just have to keep a sense of humor I, you know i often thought particularly when i worked for Knowles, you know when the shit hit the fan you were dealing with life and death situations and that always um stuck with me and you know i i always kept things sort of in in, in line and in balance i i understood that if someone didn't get their fennel salad, it wasn't going to end the world. And so just keeping things in perspective was was really pretty helpful. <laughs> yeah, make sure the kids don't fall off the cliff exactly. is more important than uh, did you get the soup that you wanted exactly, for dinner. Exactly, exactly. So I, I tried to, you know, retain that, that experience. <laughs> Do you ever have this moment when you were on a boat and you thought to yourself wow, how did I get here? Or did that seem like a normal trajectory for you to end up cooking on on a yacht? You know, it's funny. I think almost daily, I think, wow, in my life, how did I get here? Life is so random and so full of unexpected um, experiences. But Oh, many times I thought, how in the world did I go from working for Knowles, which really I would say, you know, is one of the most environmentally responsible um, entities that could ever exist, to working on these super yachts where really gluttony and and um, sort of ostentatious. Uh, um, I don't know what the word is. Experience is is kind of at the forefront. So I thought that all the time. I really did. Um, but they really that, are polar opposites. Absolutely, it's, you know, polar you opposites. You almost can't write it better that you were out in nature doing the most, you know, 
the least carbon footprint yes. possible behavior, and then you ended up on a super yacht sailing the seven seas, cooking lobster for <laughs> yeah, champagne yeah, swilling yeah. folks, and ha- and having you know truffle oil flown in from from France, you know, at the cost of thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, I thought about that all the time, and actually, in the end, when I left the yachting industry, it was because I, I really thought that mm, I struggled with with the idea that there is such a small population, um, you know, that had so much available to them and, and we're putting such a large footprint on the, on the earth's surface and seas. I, I couldn't, my conscience didn't allow it anymore. So, but it was a, I don't even regret it. I have a lot of really dear friends all over the world that I keep in good touch with that I worked on the boats with. And, and it was, I felt lucky, you know, for the experience for sure. You've seen so much of the world, uh, through your travels, through the ability to be on a boat means that today you're in one country and tomorrow you're in another country. It's given you the flexibility to, I hope, get off the boat and see a lot of different cultures and and taste a lot of different food. I'm curious how uh, Kings County Imperial came to be. Uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what style of restaurant it is and uh, why you chose to open that type of uh, of restaurant. Was it informed by your travels? Is it a food that you love? Is it both? If you can talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So when I was in culinary school, uh, I got a job at a Chinese restaurant that was local to Montpelier. It was a Sichuan restaurant, and I got a job as their cold cold line cook. And that was my first, not my first, but my uh, in my adult life, that was a, a very inspirational uh, job and experience. So, so uh, the chef there was a um, very creative and sort of eccentric cook, and I learned uh, the the first the beginnings of of balance with Chinese cuisine, which is salty and sweet and and sour all at once. And so that um, experience, I met my business partner cooking there as well, Josh Grinker. Uh, He's our chef at Kings County. And uh, we kept in touch for many, many years um, and opened another restaurant in Brooklyn uh, way back in 2003 called Stone Park Cafe, which was new American, kind of modern cuisine. But we had uh, traveled a lot and, and over the years, spent some time in China, and we really had this dream that we wanted to bring um, our experience to a, a small format restaurant in New York. So Kings County is a Chinese restaurant, even though neither of us are Chinese. We have a huge love and respect for Chinese culture and Chinese cuisine. Um, it's, I would say, uh, artisanal Chinese. I mean, everything is handmade. Every single thing is handmade in-house. We hand-roll our dumplings every morning. Our soy sauce, which we have a partnership with a family of third-generation soy makers in southern China, which is a, a whole story in itself of how we found them. But they uh, sun-ferment their soy um, using their great-grandfather's aspergillus, or koji, which is the fungus or culture used in the fermentation of soybeans. Um, they sun-ferment. There's no preservatives, no MSG. We bring that over by sea, and we cook... Um, strictly using that soy sauce and we have it on tap which prevents the oxidation of the soy so we have that on all of our tables we have a big garden out back where we grow um, a lot of both heirloom chinese and and just heirloom vegetables and you know it's all uh it's all a um, 
interesting little corner of of Brooklyn, I guess. It opened in 2015, correct? That's correct, yeah. And uh, I, I'm curious, did you travel with Josh to China in order to source the soy sauce before you opened, or did that come after you opened? So we have traveled multiple times to China. The soy came no, the soy came right about at the time that we opened. We had been multiple times to visit with the family and uh, develop a relationship with them. It was a little touch and go. We got a very small batch that we managed to open with. Um, but since then, you know, we have a much more regular schedule of the, when the soy comes over. We were just there recently. In fact, we just got back um, about a month where, ago. Where is it? So the soy is actually in southern China. That's uh, We fly into Hong Kong. We take the ferry across the Pearl River Delta, and the soy is outside of a municipality called Zhuhai. Um, and that's where the land is, and that's where the, the soy is fermented. Do they speak Mandarin there? Yes, they do. you do. speak Mandarin? Oh, no, we don't. We, okay. We, we definitely um, we hire translators, but the grandson, who's about our age, um, he, he speaks English, so we, we, we converse with English with him. And do they sell their soy sauce to the United States, or are you the only people that bring it? Um, they sell their soy. In, uh, we're the only ones that bring our recipes. So we worked with them because we didn't want um, to have preservatives in. It's got to have a higher salinity. So we spent um, some time working on a recipe that would allow a nice balance of flavor without having any preservatives in it. So our soy is just for us. Um, that the, the flavor profile that we created is, is just ours. And beyond the... Beyond the soy sauce and the garden, what made what made you and Josh want to open a Chinese restaurant? What was behind the idea of besides the fact that you enjoyed the food and yeah. that you had cooked there together? You'd been all over the world, and obviously, That's you right. and Josh have had owned a, a restaurant together, so you've been partners for a long time. How did you nail down the idea that Kings County Imperial was going to do Chinese food based on a lot of Szechuan flavors? Yeah, I think that that really stemmed from our experience um, cooking at, at the Chinese restaurant called The Single Pebble. I think that those that flavor profile was incredibly exciting to us and uh, very unique. I mean, the Sichuan peppercorn is, is only used in one region in China, which is the Sichuan region, where we were just recently um, in Chengdu, and it is is just so unique, uh, um, unbeknownst to us, that uh, Chengdu was just named a World Heritage Food City because of you know the culture, the history, and the uniqueness of of the flavor profile there. So I, I think we were just inspired many many years ago by uh, the uniqueness and the intricacies of that cuisine, and you know that that stuck with us all uh, over a long time period. And when we finally decided to do a Chinese inspired restaurant, I think it was, um, yeah, just, just due to our love and passion of that specific cuisine. I'm curious as someone who cooks food, that is not, uh, my food. Yes. Let's have a discussion yes. about this. Uh, my brother and I, uh, have a Mediterranean middle Eastern restaurant. We're white guys from Michigan. Our yeah. family is uh, from Eastern Europe. Uh, we've thought about this. I'm curious what you and Josh have, have thought about the fact that neither of you are Chinese and you cook Chinese food. And also, uh, has there been any, um, has there been a conversation with your customers? Have you had people come in and say things either 
negative or positive about uh, about the fact that neither of you are uh, Chinese or from um, from that area of the world? A hundred percent. It's a it's a very important topic. I think both Josh and I feel an added sense of responsibility in terms of cooking the food as purely and as traditionally as we know how. I mean, we had a, a, a Chinese wok line put in. We have only Chinese equipment, so we have a, a vertical pork oven. We have dim sum steamers. I think because we're not native Chinese and, you know, cultural appropriation is, is certainly a topic these days, I think we feel an added responsibility to cook um, with respect and um, you know, cooking a cuisine that's not ours just makes us feel more responsible to doing it to the absolute best that we know how and uh, still preserving um, the culture and respect for the culture. Did you feel a certain amount of pressure before you opened about the fact that uh, that you weren't cooking Pennsylvania cuisine? A hundred percent. I mean, gosh, up, up until, well, even now, you know, but up until we really opened that door and and had you know six months of of experience under our belt i wondered day to day you know if it was if it was going to work would the concept work would would it be, would people like it would 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 anyone even walk through the door and and you know and i still think about that a lot i mean luckily now we have a great a great following we we've been well received in the neighborhood and and further and we feel very fortunate um you know to have the clientele that we do it's 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 been knock on wood a, a a very good experience so far. So, you and Josh are business partners, and uh, I'm a recent restaurant owner. Congratulations! And thank you. And uh, a lot of people that listen to Heritage Radio are in the business; they're in the industry. And so, I wanted you to speak a little bit about your working relationship with Josh, and kind of, you know quickly, but also yeah. do a deep dive on who really is responsible for what within the business and how how does that work, having a partner um, where you operate a restaurant together that is so much, so much of your lives are, are intertwined in the heart and soul of the restaurant. Yeah, Josh and I, well, Josh and I have known each other a long time, luckily, and, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of trust there. We both have a very similar work ethic, and that, to me, is... 75% of the battle of, of opening a restaurant is just being, being willing to work very, very hard, which we both are. Um, Josh runs the kitchen, and I, you know, run the front more or less and, and, and do a lot of the gardening, a lot of the aesthetics of the restaurant. Um, we, we collaborate a lot, though. We collaborate on recipes, on our vision, on, you know, special events. We spend a lot of time, you know, brainstorming with each other and being each other's sounding boards for um, how, you know, our, we hope the restaurant um, will run. When you uh, think about Kings County a year and a half in right now, what are your hopes and visions for the future of uh, Kings County Imperial? And uh, do you see more of them? Do you and Josh have plans to do a different concept somewhere else in New York or elsewhere? Yeah, we're, we're you know we're we're thinking about that all the time. I think our focus right now is on our soy. Um, we have a very large batch of soy on its way, um, twenty thousand gallons. I don't even know what. I mean, God, I can't honestly can't Where even. Are you gonna put that? Well, that's a great question. We're, well, we're going to rent a, a large unit in mm -hmm. probably in Jersey. Uh, part of that soy will come bottled, so we're, we actually are going to start retailing it. But half the soy will come in bulk, which um, our hope is to 
to uh, use a co-packer upstate um, for some recipes that we really love. Um, our all-purpose kung pao, which is sort of our mother sauce used in a lot of stir-fry sauces, but is quite laborious. I think there's almost 25 different ingredients. It marinates for 30 days. So our hope is to uh, bring that to you know a larger audience um, and some home cooks that might not have the time or the ability to um, you know spend making certain sauces. So our focus right now is is on that. And then yes, we would love to do another Kings County Imperial or multiple others. You know, there's always a fine line between quality control and you know having our um, overseeing a business. You know, we don't want to get too big too fast, but we certainly feel like there's room for more Kings County Imperials out there. So with Josh in the kitchen and you overseeing more of the business development as well as the front of house, uh, you obviously spent many, many years in a kitchen yep. cooking. Are you, uh, are you really happy with where you're, what you're doing right now? Do you ever get an itch and say, I, you know what, I think I'm going to jump on the line? Or do you think like perhaps the, the being on the line portion of your career has come to an end? Well, you know, I, I am very happy not being in the kitchen full time anymore. It's a, it's an awful lot of work. Having said that, I, I get back there on the walk. Um, you know, we've had cooks call out sick. We've had things that have gone awry and I've had to get back there and it's good for me. You know, it's, it's as a chef owner, you, you really do need to be prepared for every eventuality. So I still get back there and cook. The walk skill is, is a very specific and challenging method of cooking, which, which I love. It's fast and it's hot and it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit stressful, as I know most cooking jobs in the industry are. But, um, yeah, I still get back there and cook. But I'm actually quite relieved not to be, uh, you know, 14 hours uh, over a hot wok stove. That's okay with me. <laughs> so every once in a while, do you still get out to uh, pencil to outside Philadelphia to tend to the bees or? Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I was just down there last weekend, although the winter is, you know, the bees are dormant. They don't, they, they don't require a lot of uh, maintenance over the winter, but yeah, uh, in the summertime, uh, spring, summer, fall, for sure. I get down there every few weeks, um, to, to help maintain the hives. Do you, and you sure. use that in the restaurant we, at all? Yeah, we do. We have the, um, uh, crispy garlic chicken and the sauce is, a. A light, thin sauce that is a combination of our soy, um, the local honey. So there's a, a tree called a linden tree, which is native to that area of Philadelphia, and the bees just go crazy for them. So um, my honey is linden honey, and it's got a little bit of an herbaceous quality to it. But that honey is in with the the sauce for the crispy garlic chicken, along with some granulated garlic and a few other things. So that's. Uh, so as someone who has traveled all over the world, you've spent so much time outdoors. Where's your next adventure? Where are you going next on either a work or personal vacation? You know, I haven't planned a next adventure yet. I'm, 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 I'll get on it. I definitely will. I, um, you know, there's a million places I'd still love to go. I'd love to go down to Patagonia, Chile. There's a, a national park down there where you can do a, a loop of I think it's a 10-day circuit um, called Tour del Pen and I would love to get down there but right now I think we're, we're still in the thick of it and um, I don't have any real plans coming up 
Yeah. Oh, I did. I did join the Appalachian Mountain Club a week ago, and I, I plan to get up to New Hampshire this this summer. I, I started thinking I, I need to get more realistic and not, you know, have to jump on a plane every time I want some solitude. So um, they have a hut so system you just in the go, White Mountains. You'll just go hike the Appalachian Trail. That yeah, sounds like a pretty simple right? way to kick back. That's what I thought. I thought there's a hut system, so I don't have to carry my tent. And I thought, okay, the White Mountains. That sounds all right. So yeah. So I, I plan to get away a few times this summer and and uh, not not have to. Carry carry a hundred pound pack though. Tracy, thank you so much for being oh, here. Such a pleasure. I'm happy that you could be uh, on the show today and share all your incredible adventures and talk about being in the outdoors and beekeeping and also sharing a little bit about Kings County Imperial. Can you just let everybody know where it's located? Absolutely. Kings County, we're uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn at 20 Skillman Avenue between Lorimer and Meeker. Hidden hidden little spot. You'd probably walk by it unless you knew where it was. So look hard. Right come, by the BQE. Right by the BQE. And and uh, we, we, again, we, we'd love anybody and everyone to come say hi to us. Um, we're always happy to give tours of, of the facility and talk a little bit more about, you know, our endeavors and, and the restaurants. So thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor, and um, I hope to be back again sometime soon. Of course. Tracy, thanks very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. This is The Line. See you next week, Tuesday at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.